hey there, everyone, and welcome back to the Voice of Liberty podcast. My name is Bradley Cooper, and I'm your host, but not for this week. I'm super excited to reintroduce Brett. Uh, he was on our actually the very first episode that we had here at Voice of Liberty, and he has been working pretty hard on getting a top-notch guest for you all on the show today. So, without further ado, hey there, Brett. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Voice of Liberty podcast. Uh, this is your Missouri State Director for the Convention of States Project, Brett Sturley. Uh, I am your host this week. Uh, the Convention of States Project is a grassroots volunteer organization of over 4.7 million supporters. We're committed to the teaching the principles of self-governance and restoring our constitutional structure by using the Article 5 Convention of States process. Um, Thank you for joining us uh, this week. We have another great guest. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Barkey is a board-certified primary care physician in private practice for over 25 years. He completed his medical school and family practice residency at the University of California, Irvine. He has served as an associate clinical professor at UC Irvine and a board member of the Orange County Medical Association. He is also a reserve deputy and a tactical physician for local, a local law enforcement SWAT team. Dr. Barkey also served as an elected school board member for the Los Alamitos Unified School District for 12 years and is co-founder and current school board chair of a free public charter school in Orange, California called Orange County Classical Academy. Dr. Barkey is married to his high school sweetheart, and they have two adult children. Well, welcome, Dr. Barkey, and thank you for being with us today. Brett, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's quite a little bio there. Uh, doesn't leave a lot of time for uh, a lot of other stuff. It sounds like you have lots of plates up in the air. I know who wrote that. Was that Mark Meckler that gave you that bio of me? I don't know. That was, a, that was an outstanding bio. So, uh, you know, that, that was very well done, whoever did that. <laughs> well, thank you. So, so uh, you've, you've had a pretty interesting week, haven't you? Yeah. You know, the uh, organization that I'm part of, known as America's Frontline Physicians, uh, went to Washington, D.C. earlier in the week to hold a press conference and meet with some legislators and meet with some news outlets and social media people to really share a message of hope and optimism about COVID-19. And the message really was, uh, was really threefold. The first was to describe hydroxychloroquine and its proper use as an effective tool to both treat and even prevent COVID-19 and treatment is most effective, especially in the early stages when the symptoms are mild. The second message was one of the need to open up the schools and that the science behind that supports it. And then the third was that we really can't get over this virus by mandating the masking of our entire population. And so those are really the three primary points. And the ultimate goal, of course, is to get this narrative out uh, because the mainstream media has no interest in supporting anything that remotely resembles optimism as it relates to COVID-19. And ultimately what we would like to see happen is to have hydroxychloroquine become an over-the-counter drug which would eliminate the politics of it. And this is the case in many countries around the world, including India, which has had a relatively mild go of COVID-19 and in no small part 
because uh, the population there can easily obtain hydroxychloroquine for use in both treatment and the prevention of the illness. Well, yeah, that's it's a uh, it certainly has. Uh, it seems like every every aspect of life is politically charged uh, nowadays, and it's especially sad when it comes to health issues. Um, and obviously, hydroxychloroquine is on the uh, is on the front line of that. Um, you know what? Uh, and you you're definitely your group definitely uh, attracted attention from the overlords of the internet and social media. Uh, as well as your that that video on the on the steps uh, there in DC, uh, I think it had like around 20 million views before it was was taken down. What was your reaction? What what are your thoughts on the reaction to the video? Oh, it doesn't surprise me because I have personally experienced that with some of my videos and posts being uh, deplatformed as well. And I think it's just telling because it happened on such a broad and national, actually international scale. I think it's very, very helpful, and I'm almost glad that it happened this way, because it makes the general population aware of just how arbitrary and capricious some of these media outlets are in what they decide they will allow the public to see and what they will censor. And the unfortunate part is the major media outlets are just controlled by a handful of people, and they control the information that most people see especially when you talk about uh, getting information through the internet, through Facebook, through YouTube. Uh, even our web hosting company, Squarespace, which is a very common web hosting company, it's easy to use, it's simple to make websites. Um, they deplatformed America's Frontline Physicians website. And then our email provider, MailChimp, another one of those common companies that a lot of us use to send out mass emails to tons of people. Uh, MailChimp decided that we were not worthy of their business and they removed our account uh, as well. And so it just goes to show you that when you have a message that the mainstream media doesn't like, um, this can happen to you. And for us, it happened on a very, very large scale. Now, I wanna be clear to your listeners um, I unfortunately was not able to go to DC, so I wasn't one of the doctors that was there. I did participate remotely on the first day on Monday. Um, uh, I got to speak on school opening, and, uh, but unfortunately I wasn't actually able to go. The physician who really headed up this whole organization and brought all these doctors together was Dr. Simone Gold, who's a board certified emergency room physician. And interestingly, she is also a Stanford-educated attorney. So she's got that going for her. Uh, very smart lady and uh, great organizational skills. And she combined efforts with uh, the Tea Party Patriots, Jenny Beth Martin, and Breitbart, uh, Breitbart helped as well in broadcasting this, uh, this press conference that was held both Monday and Tuesday. And I think the message is important to get out. And, and by, the, by the way, Brett, even if you disagree with what we're saying, and there are plenty of doctors that don't agree with the widespread use of hydroxychloroquine, and that's what medicine and, uh, and what we're all about here in this country, is having differing opinions, having a robust discussion, a spirited discussion about uh, various different viewpoints. Um, I can't imagine anyone would believe 
that the voices of these reputable, highly credentialed physicians should be shut down, deplatformed, and banned uh, by social media sites. That's just that's just wrong, and uh, and I think there will be widespread, long-lasting consequences as a result. Well, I, I certainly agree with you there, and you know, it, and they talk about um, I don't know how many times I've heard this. I've heard it to where I'm I'm sick and tired of hearing it. Is you know, follow the science. Well, there is there is science supporting. You know, hydroxychloroquine as as a as a as as a treatment, especially in the early stages of COVID nineteen. I mean, there's there's been a, a Henry Henry Ford Medical Center uh, study, uh, studies from Yale, uh, studies from uh, Dr. Ioannidis. I mean, there's there's several peer reviewed um, articles that that I've seen that I've read through, and it seems that. Um, anything that goes outside of the narrative that, um, you know, either social media or uh, the the establishment culture wants to advance, uh, like you said, is shut down, is deplatformed, and we've seen this across, you know, several times with different, especially conservative conservative sites, and it's 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 really uh, it's it's really frustrating. It does a disservice to the American people. Yeah, I agree with you, Brett. And it's more than just simply our message being silenced or deplatformed. It's also personal attacks against every physician that showed up in D.C. I didn't even show up, and I'm getting attacked. It is the uh, the effort by those that don't like our message uh, to discredit us as people and as physicians. Um, there's a movement now to go after every doctor that was involved to go after their medical license to get medical boards to investigate us, to get hospital systems to remove us from staff, uh, et cetera. So it's not enough that our message is being shut down, but it's also that each of us is being personally attacked. Well, so I guess basically you're coming to a victim of the, you're a victim of the cancel culture, apparently. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, uh, there's no statues of us that need to be torn down, but us as individuals and as medical providers, they want that part of our lives to be eliminated. And th- and that's really, you know, we see that on so many different fronts here now is that, you know, it's, it's in, people don't want to have a, a, a rational, logical, linear discussion of, difference of differences of opinion and 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 have that kind of conversation in in a de, in a debate to where the the best ideas went out, and that's really how we advance most as a society. And again, that is just a disservice to to the American people um, that we're that we're not able to have a robust discussion and robust debate about what are the best uh, public policies, healthcare policies, and there's really nothing more intimate than. Than, than the relationship between a physician and a patient. Yeah, I agree. That sacrosanct uh, relationship is really important. And right now that relationship is being fractured from the outside. And so I no longer can just simply sit with a patient, review the science, review the symptoms, review the risks and benefits, and make an informed decision with that patient about their treatment. Because now when I prescribe something like hydroxychloroquine, I'm now challenged by a pharmacist as to why I'm prescribing it, and I'm being asked to justify that prescription. And I think in part, some of us, I, I, can, I can overcome that and I'll fight through it. 
um, and I'll continue to do what I think is best for my patients. But there are some doctors that are just so frustrated and fed up by this that they just stop engaging and they no longer prescribe medications because they're worried about the pushback. I read an article, uh, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I read it tonight that uh, the state of Ohio is going to ban the use of hydroxychloroquine for physicians to prescribe if it's related to COVID-19. I think that's a huge mistake, and which is one of the reasons why we are pushing, Dr. Gold is leading this effort, why she is pushing to have this drug made over the counter. If we can do that, then we eliminate the politics then we can advise patients and they can simply go into the supermarket or a pharmacy and buy it over the counter without any hassle, without any grief, and make a decision that they think is best. Remember that hydroxychloroquine is over the counter in many countries around the world. As a matter of fact, it's one of the few medications, and don't believe me, look it up. It's one of the few medications that is actually FDA approved to be used during pregnancy and to be used during breastfeeding, just as an example of how safe this medication is. And if we look at other over-the-counter medications, things that we're all used to getting, aspirin, for example, and I would encourage your listeners while they're listening to this to just Google this on your phone. How many people die of aspirin annually? And you'll see a number somewhere around 3,000. Do the same thing with hydroxychloroquine, and you will have difficulty finding a single death attributed to this medication. So it's a very, very safe medication. Um, I believe it should be over the counter. Heck, I think a lot of medication should be over the counter. I wanna put healthcare into the hands of patients and, uh, and not into the hands of bureaucrats. Well, obviously I did not go to medical school, but I would think that if there was gonna be any kind of harmful side effects from a drug, uh, it would, they would manifest themselves over somebody take them, taking them across their whole entire lifetime rather than just you know, five or seven days. So yeah, I, yeah that's, absolutely, that's absolutely right. And we use this medication routinely. So f- for example, Brett, if you were going to Africa to go to the game parks where they have malaria, Uh, we would routinely put you on medication to prevent you from getting malaria. And what medication might we use? Well, hydroxychloroquine is one on the list that we can use uh, to give you while you go over to the game park or wherever else you might be going where malaria is there. During the Vietnam War, we routinely gave our soldiers uh, the former version of hydroxychloroquine known as chloroquine, uh, and we gave that to them Uh, in order for them to be prevented from getting malaria when they were out in the jungles of Vietnam. So this medication has been around for a very long time. It has a proven safety record, which is why it is over-the-counter in many countries, and it should be in ours as well. Well, it would be nice to get the politics out of it. And I'll just, uh, just a little point of personal privilege. My mother had some some health issues just this last week, and um, you know, she has uh, some respiratory issues, and they're non-COVID related. And when I was speaking with the doctor, um, she was on uh, Lasix to try to help draw some of the fluid away from her, uh, her pulmonary system. And the the doctor in the, in the conversation, you know, she mentioned um, prescribing a certain drug to kind of help augment the effect of the Lasix. And she told me she's like, there is some controversy on whether this is you know, uh, really successful, but 
I have used it several times in treating patients in the same in similar conditions as what your mother is in similar need, and so I think that this it, there aren't side effects. So I think that this is going to be, you know, I would like to prescribe this but because uh, I think it will help. And, you know, that's a very, very private decision between, you know, me being a DPOA and my mother being the patient and a doctor. And so we said, okay, go ahead. And you know, literally within 24 hours, my mother's breathing problems had subsided. She was, you know, substantially better, almost, almost back to her normal self. Now, can I say 100% for sure it was because of that drug? No, but I'm thinking it did, it definitely did not hurt. And so that's, to me, that's the same conversation that I see with using hydroxychloroquine. It should be something between a doctor and, and a patient and not a bureaucrat standing in their way or someone else, quote unquote, following the science whenever, as we've discussed, there is a long track record for the success and, and viability of this drug. No, you're absolutely right. You've just described an, a classic and typical example of a doctor-patient relationship where we work through the details of the symptoms and we talk about the various treatment options and then together with the patient, we make a decision as to how to move forward with the patient's consent. And we do things all the time that way. We use the, the science of, of what we know and the studies that are out there uh, we use our knowledge, experience, and wisdom, and then we individualize that treatment for the patient that we're in front of, and we make the best decision that we can. That's why it's called the art and practice of medicine. And with hydroxychloroquine, re remember COVID's only been out since you know January, February, March, when we started studying it. So there are only limited studies with hydroxychloroquine. There are some that showed no benefit, especially late in the course of the illness, and there are several that have showed benefit as well. We know, I think it was during April, when the number of prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine in France rose by 7,000%, and that was because there were some studies out of France that showed benefit, and the doctors started using it, similarly around the world. Um, but here in the United States, it's a political drug and uh, you're called a quack and you're threatened to have your license taken away if you make that decision with the patient based on the science, based on your judgment, based on your wisdom, um, and, and prescribe as you see fit and, and what the patient wants. I've had a, a lot of experience with hydroxychloroquine now over the last several months. I've treated numerous patients for COVID-19. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, uh, you know, lucky to say that I've not had one patient that I've treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 end up in the hospital. Uh, so whether I'm good or lucky, I don't know, but it's worked out so far really well. And many of the other doctors that have, were part of uh, America's frontline physicians have had similar experience. We heard Dr. Stella uh, talk on the, on the Supreme Court steps about her experience. She, I think, described over 350 patients that she's uh, treated with successfully with hydroxychloroquine. But of course, as soon as she says that, her message isn't attacked, the science isn't attacked, she personally is attacked. And I think that's just wrong, but that's, that's what it's come to now. No longer do they argue the, the facts and the science, rather they attack you, discredit you, and go after you in every way they can to try to get you to shut up. 
And fortunately, we do have some brave doctors that are out there that are on the forefront that are literally risking everything uh, to protect our First Amendment rights, to protect our medical freedoms, to protect that uh, important relationship that each doctor has with their patient and, uh, and hopefully make a difference. And I, and I think we are, I really do. I think because of the message and the reaction to that message, this is not something that can be ignored. Um, the, these, these videos are being shared over and over and over again, and YouTube and company can't keep up with taking them all down, so the message is getting out. Uh, it's being covered by the mainstream media now. Of course, much, much, much of the mainstream media message now is damage control to discredit the physicians, to push out any possible study that shows that hydroxychloroquine uh, doesn't work, and to push down studies that show its benefit. You know, the bottom line really is this. Whether you think it works or it doesn't work really isn't the issue. It's the medical freedom that every doctor should have to make an informed decision with their patient based on the data, their studies, their experience, their wisdom, individualized for each patient. That's what this really is about. It's not about whether hydroxychloroquine works or doesn't work. It's about really having medical freedom. Uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more, and I think that uh, you know, and th thank you for your your courage and your colleagues' courage for you know for uh, going against the uh, the prevailing narrative to just introduce new information and and you know challenging people to hey go take a look for yourself you know and that's that's what that's kind of the American way. But I think that a lot of you know what in talking to people, there's so much fr frustration with. You know, inconsistent recommendations and changing instructions. I mean, you look back at what's happened over the last three or four months. I mean, we're we're quarantining healthy people. We're releasing inmates and jailing business owners that want to open up their businesses. We're telling people they can't go to church, but we're allowing riots in the streets. It's it's really difficult to 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 know exactly you know what to do. So, are are there some successful coping methods or or strategies that you've seen help people? you know, get through these challenges both, you know, on the, both physically and mentally. Absolutely. So the good news, Brett, is I live out here in California, and we've got a governor that's got it all figured out. So during our economic shutdown, uh, he was very smart to make sure that the liquor stores remained open and that our marijuana dispensaries remained open. All so as long as we... As long as we had that going for us, we, we can survive this. All, all, those, all those essential services, right? Exactly. Well, <laughs> while our churches were shut, while so-called non-essential surgeries and medical appointments were shut down, uh, while mom-and-pop stores were closed, but the large box stores like Costco's and so forth remained open. I mean, these decisions were made so arbitrary and so capricious that it was, you know, we have a, there's a paper out here in Sacramento. Sacramento is the capital of California, and it's called the Babylon Bee, and it's a parody site. And some of these things that were coming out, you would swear that you're reading them in the Babylon Bee, not in actually uh, the newspaper or you know, orders from our governor. But, but the reality is this, you're right. A lot of us are under stress. Many of us, unfortunately, are, are unemployed. There's a lot of fear out there that we may catch the virus and what do we do? 
I think most importantly is we need to take really good care of ourselves. There's, there's a way to strengthen your immune system and put yourself in a position where if you need to battle that fight and you come in contact with COVID-19, you'll be in a better position to win that battle and to survive. And, and that comes with clean eating, making sure that you're eating really healthy, lots of greens, fruits and vegetables, lean protein, et cetera, being careful about excessive sugar, being careful about alcohol. Also, exercise is important. So even though that we're stuck in our house sometimes, we can go out and go for a run. Uh, we can't go to the gym, but we can still exercise and stay fit, keep your weight down. Also, there's a group of supplements that I think are important and helpful in supporting our immune system function. And those are vitamin D3. We're realizing that there's a correlation between low vitamin D3 and, uh, and our immune system not being in a position to fight COVID. As a matter of fact, we're aware that the black and brown community has been hit hard by COVID-19. And there's a pretty good correlation between those with dark pigmented skin do not, are not able to produce vitamin D from the sunshine like those that have lighter colored skin. So there's um, some ongoing studies now to look at not just the correlation, but possibly causation between a low vitamin D level and susceptibility to COVID-19. So I think vitamin D3 is an important supplement to take every day. I also recommend vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams a day, um, and take zinc. We know zinc is very disruptive to virus replication. And the way we think that zinc works is the zinc gets into the cell and mucks up the virus's machinery that otherwise would allow it to replicate. And what hydroxychloroquine does is it helps open up the cell to allow zinc in. There's another supplement that has a similar function and it's called quercetin. You can buy it at the supermarket or the vitamin store. And quercetin acts as a agent similar to hydroxychloroquine to help zinc get into the cells. So if you do come in contact with this virus, you'll be in a better position to fight it off. And then of course, just staying well hydrated is important also. So those are some of the things that I recommend taking good care of yourself. So you're in a position that if you do come in contact with this virus, um, you'll be able to fight it off. And then find a doctor before you need a doctor that understands the variety of treatment strategies. Don't wait until you're sick to start making phone calls. I have, I have folks from all over the country reaching out to me wanting to know if I, if I can and will treat them. Unfortunately, my license to practice is in California, so I can only treat California patients. So if you're not in California, it's important to uh, spend, a, spend a, a few minutes, call your own doctor, find out would they be willing to use hydroxychloroquine if you do get sick, and if the answer is no, make some other phone calls and find docs in your area that would be willing to do that. So it shouldn't take you too long. Um, there's also, you could go on the uh, AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS. They are a uh, organization, they just put out a piece a few minutes ago. Uh, I shared it on my Facebook site, uh, a piece about um, they're suing to try to get hydroxychloroquine uh, to be made uh, approved for physicians to use more liberally. So I don't know if they have a site uh, where you can look up AAPS members, but those folks might be more willing to prescribe 
hydroxychloroquine than some other doctors as well. So look around, ask around, find a doctor before you need a doctor, and, uh, and then put yourself in the best position by taking care of yourself. So in case you get sick, uh, that you're more likely to survive this virus. Well, I think that's great advice, and you know, it, and it's interesting you mentioned uh, you know the one thing that has been left out of this whole entire conversation is strengthening your immune system, and I you know that just seems to be, you know, I, I want I want as many soldiers inside my body fighting off the bad guys uh, inside my body as possible, and you know that that used to be one of those one of those things that we were always taught is is to you know that some of the things that you're talking about right there and be, and beefing up our immune system and you know so we're not we're not as dependent upon medication which but that's just apparently just not allowed to be talked about now. Exactly, it's it kind of reminds me of that meme that's going around where there's this picture of this. Uh, obviously very unhealthy person uh, sitting somewhere and uh, you know that you can just tell they don't take care of themselves they're very unhealthy and and then the caption is somebody's walking by without a mask on and this unhealthy person is screaming at this person without a mask on saying something like you not wearing a mask is putting my health at risk <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh, yeah that's um yeah, not not exactly wanting to, to take a to take a responsibility for your own behavior. That's for sure. So that's funny. Exactly. That's funny. So you know, in in speaking with um, in speaking with people, you know, there's such a misunderstanding of you know of, of history in general and the Constitution in particular that you know there's there's a prevailing opinion. And I just had a conversation on social media about this a few minutes ago that that the role of government is to keep you safe. And you know that's that's not correct at all, is it? No, not at all. I mean, that's the problem we have these days is people are looking toward government to do all the things that they should be doing for ourselves. The, the role of government, in, in my mind, is to have some basic functions only and then leave the states and the people to go about their lives and, and live their lives. I think that's what our founders had in mind. Uh, if you look at the Constitution, I carry around a Constitution almost everywhere I go, Article 2, Section 8 lists, lists the enumerated powers of the federal government. And the idea is these are the things and only the things that the federal government should be doing. Anything else that isn't listed here, we give that to the states and to the individuals to go about their lives and live their lives. So unfortunately, our government has exceeded its founding principles by an order of magnitude. And, uh, and, I, and I think we need to really restore that, restore our Constitution to what our founders originally wanted it to be, which, by the way, interestingly enough, is how I end up talking to uh, Brett from Convention of States. You know, years ago, uh, my son went to a little small college in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, called Hillsdale College. And uh, one of the first, uh, it was like a back-to-school night, parents, parents' weekend, where you go out and meet the teachers and hang out with your kids and so forth. And I, I bumped into this guy that uh, has become a, a dear friend of mine. And, uh, and that guy is Mark Meckler, whose daughter, Lucy, was attending Hillsdale College with my son. I had sort of heard about Meckler peripherally because, as you know, he's one of the original founders of the Tea Party Patriots. Um, and then he went on and founded this crazy organization called Convention of States. 
So Meckler and I bumped into each other and we became fast friends. We sat up in the little coffee shop for hours at a time talking about the Constitution and life. And he shared with me all his efforts about convention of states. And to me, as he was talking, it just made such sense to me um, that what he was trying to do was exactly the right thing. I went on and read Mark Levin's book where he talks about an Article 5 Convention of States. And ever since then, I've been, a, uh, I've been an advocate. And uh, Meckler has recruited me to be part of the Physicians for Convention of States uh, coalition. And I'll never forget that uh, in describing, you know, and, and like most people, you think, well, there's a process by which we amend the Constitution, right? Congress votes, and then they send it to the states. And if so many states vote on it, then we get a new amendment, right? And Meckler said, yeah, that's right. But one of our founders, before the Constitution was signed, had a problem with what was going on with it at the time. And that was Colonel George Mason, my favorite founder. And what Mason said right around the time before the Constitution was signed is he said, no amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government should become oppressive. And what he meant by that is, if the government gets to such a level where it's so big, tyrannical even, certainly oppressive, they, the government, would never pass an amendment that would limit their own power. Politicians just don't do that. So Colonel Mason was the key driver in saying, yes, we have this amendment process in the Constitution, and we've used it. I think it's been 28 times, 27 times. Mm -hmm, right. um, but he said, but we need to do more than that. We need to have a way in which outside of the congressional leaders that the states themselves can step up and actually make amendments to the Constitution. And that's where Article 5, Convention of States, come into play. And, uh, and Mark is working hard. He's making progress. And um, boy, it's, it's, quite a, uh, it's quite a hill to climb. And I give him a lot of credit for, for climbing that hill. And I'm, I'm happy to be uh, in the battlefield with him. Uh, making every effort I, I can to push the message out to inform people and to get the legislators of the states to pass resolutions uh, to support a convention of states. And, uh, and if we get there, I think it'll be fantastic. Even if we don't get all the way there, but we get close, I think it'll get the attention and make some changes that we want made. One, one other uh, you know, quick topic, if, you, if we could touch on that. Um, is uh, you know Medicaid expansion is has been a hot topic in several states, and you know this is one of the one of the uh, areas to where the federal government has outgrown its uh, constitutional boundaries. And actually, Medicaid expansion is on the August fourth ballot here in Missouri. And uh, has has California passed Medicare expansion? I kind of assume so, since they're kind of a hotbed of loving uh, big government programs. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, the UTLA, United Teachers Los Angeles, is the second largest teachers union in the country. And they recently came out with a demand list of what it would take for, to get their teachers in the Los Angeles area back to work. And one of their demands is uh, that we must pass in California a Medicare for all system 
Um, you know, uh, and also in that list is defunding police, removing all police officers from schools, and Medicare for all. You know, those are all the important things that go on and have to do with schooling. So why the teachers union is involved in that, I don't know. But to me, Medicare uh, expansion is, is wrong. It's a step in the direction of socialized medicine. And we have examples right now in the United States of socialized medicine. And there's three examples. One is the VA healthcare system, and it's working terribly. Um, I have veterans in my practice that choose to see and pay me rather than go to the VA because it's just a very difficult system to manipulate and to use and to try to get care, long waiting lists, uh, limited uh, medications that are available, on and on and on. It's an unbelievably bureaucratic system that's run by our government, so there's no surprise there. The second example of a single-payer socialized medicine system that we have is the Indian healthcare system. And there's been some recent articles in the paper about it, trying to reform it. It's corrupt. It provides terrible care. It's overpriced. Um, and it's another example of a failed government-run system. And then the third, of course, is Medicare. And even though there are some patients that are happy with their Medicare, that they can go to a doctor, get most stuff paid for, the reality is, is Medicare is going bankrupt. Um, more and more physicians are opting out of Medicare uh, because they're very difficult to work with. There are various rules and bureaucracies and so forth. And, um, and, and the Medicare actuarials show that we're running out of money, we're not going to be able to, to keep up the level of care, but that should be no surprise to anybody. Uh, I'm not aware of anything that you and I would look at and think it's excellent that's run by the government, which is the whole point of Article 2, Section 8 that says these are the things that government should be doing and only the things, and the rest should be left to the states and the private sector. The bigger the government gets, the smaller the individual citizen gets. So if we are just incrementally heading towards a Medicare for all system, why would anybody in their right mind want to become a physician? We'll end up with a system like England or like Canada. So in England, you have a two-tiered system. You have a government system and you have a private system. And you can bet that anybody with, with ways or means, anybody with any level of affluence, does not go to the government system. They go to the private system. And the docs in the government system are primarily docs that have been trained overseas, that are happy to work for small amounts of money in a very bureaucratic, inefficient system. And so expanding Medicare under the guise of well, we just want to help more seniors, and don't you want to care for seniors? Sort of reminds me of the arguments about passing bonds in various municipalities. It's all about the children. It's all about the children. And if you don't pass this bond or vote for this tax, then you hate children. Well, I think the opposite is true. If you actually want lower, lower cost, higher quality care for the maximum number of people, there's only one way to achieve that, and that's through a free market, transparent system. There's examples, by the way, Brett, in healthcare 
where this is happening. So if you look at aspects of healthcare that work outside the insurance market, we see just what should be happening. We see a higher quality, lower price over time. So two examples. One is uh, my brother is an ophthalmologist. That's an eye surgeon, and he works out of Dallas. And part of what he does is, um, is cataract surgery and vision correction surgery. Well, vision correction surgery is not covered by insurance, so there's a lot of competition for those dollars, non-insurance dollars. Well, as a result of vision correction surgery's advances and that it's not covered by insurance, we see a dramatic increase in the quality of care of the types of surgeries that are being performed, the lenses that are being put in, and we see a reduction in price of those procedures, sort of like you know, the, the brand new 5, 5G television comes up, 5K television comes out. When it first comes out, it's crazy expensive, but then as more people get into the market and start making it, um, the price comes down and becomes affordable. Um, so that's what should happen in healthcare. The other example is cosmetic surgery. So you look at, you know, in Southern California, we have a lot of that down where I practice in Newport Beach and other metropolitan areas. And because insurance doesn't cover cosmetic surgery, we see the, um, the, the quality of those products going up and the cost coming down. The final example is in dentistry. So a lot of insurance doesn't pay for dentistry, whether you want your teeth whitened or you need something done. So there's a lot of dentists out there competing for those private dollars. And as a result, it maintains price controls and quality goes up. So if we did the same thing throughout the medical community, uh, we created insurance products that people actually wanted, not insurance products with government-mandated components, uh, we would see a whole range of options coming up. We'd see the prices drop. We'd see the quality improve. We'd see transparency. Just like going into a supermarket and buying products, you can pick a box of whatever off the shelf, you can look at the ingredients, you can look at the price, you can make a choice between that one or a different brand that's sitting right next door. And the same thing should happen with medicine. So the way to do that is not by expanding the government program. If anything, the opposite should be, should be happening. We should contract the role of government and we should expand the free market transparent system of the of a private uh, healthcare system. Well, yeah, it's, that's that's the magic of the free market, and uh, it, it it works it works every time it's tried. And uh, you know, there's uh, they always say that the road uh, the road for good intention uh, good intentions is uh, is uh, you know paved with a lot of a lot of despair. You know, and that's it's, right. Uh, you know, it's that that Washington D.C. neither has the inclination or the appetite to uh, correct uh, a, a lot of the problems that they themselves have allowed to, uh, you know, that they've allowed to uh, fester and develop or that they've directly caused themselves. And it's, I mean, it's, it's totally understandable because, I mean, the, the framers understood that human beings are fallible beings and that we will make mistakes. And, you know, in, in the the, the natural trajectory of any central government is always to uh, accrete more and more power into itself and take more liberty away from the away from the people. And you know, Colonel Mason, as you indicated, you know, stood up and said, "Hey, you know, guys, we've got a problem here. We we're 
we're, we're letting Congress be the only entity that can propose changes to our constitutional structure. And, you know, we need to give this power to the people because if, if Congress is the tyrannical entity, uh, what makes us think that they're going to restrain their own tyranny? And obviously that's just totally against human nature. So I think that it was just really a, a, a uh, an inspired, a divinely inspired document uh, that that the framers came up with in the in the 1787 convention, and you know, definitely, you know, getting back to that as close to possible to that, uh, at least moving back that direction would be just very, very profound. And 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 to me, and I think like like you, you've seen that the only way to really do that is through the Convention of States project. Yeah, absolutely, and part of. What the Convention of States project does, besides the end result that's desired, is it's also an educational tool as well. So as we get more and more states to sign on to this, more people are learning about Article 5 and, heck, even learning about our Constitution. I can't tell you how many people have never even read the Constitution. Um, and I think it's so important for our children, our school-age kids, to be reading and learning about the Constitution and all the details about it and the ways in which that, uh, uh, that, uh, that the Constitution can be changed uh, you know, when appropriate. And this is certainly one legitimate and important way. And I wish Mark Godspeed, and I'll do what I can to help him. Well, we appreciate your help greatly. And you know, I think especially in this time now that you know, the education is very, very important. And, and, and people have to, all people have to understand that the Constitution protects everyone's individual uh, natural rights that, that are descended from the, from, the, from the Creator, that they're not subject to the whims or a vote of man, that you have the ability to, of self-defense, of accumulation and profit, of the right to property. You know, the, the, you have these, these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know that that it that doesn't it doesn't matter race color creed gender sex preference uh, anything this is this is a document that protects everyone's rights and yes we do have problems and yes there is instances to where maybe it's not uh, applied you know equally across uh, you know different populations and but just. You know, th- throwing the throwing the whole entire document out and destroying the the structure of our of our government is not the answer because what will come to it, uh, what, what will come in its place is going to be a, a tyrannical government that will be oppressive to all people instead of liberating all people. Yeah, well, un- unfortunately, we're experiencing that right now in California, as our governor is overstepping what I believe is his constitutional authority. Uh, by preventing schools from opening, by shutting down businesses unnecessarily. Uh, Heck, even about a month ago, shut down beaches in Orange County, one of the safest places you could be, outdoors, in the sunshine, with fresh air, yet he he wanted to punish the people of Orange County and uh, and lead by uh, being a dictator, unfortunately. Well, well, Dr. Barkey, uh, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us here this week, and we, we appreciate your courage and your colleagues' courage in standing up you know, against the popular narrative and you know, presenting you know, facts and, 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 and your experience. And uh, uh, you know, everyone, thank you for joining us for this week's episode, and be sure to visit www.cosaction.com and tune in next Friday at 10 a.m. for another edition 
of the Voice of Liberty. Uh, Dr. Barkey, thank you very much again. Brett, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Okay, stay safe. Great. Thank you so much, Brett. I, I know I loved listening to that interview. And look, Brett covered so many important topics that we face as citizens, as Convention of States advocates. So here's what I'd ask you to do. Share this podcast with 10 people. Just click the share button on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify and text it over to 10 of your friends. What that's going to do is it's going to spread the message of liberty and it's going to spread the message that Dr. Barkey and his coworkers are trying to spread all over social media and the mainstream media, but they're being shut down. So tell the media who's in charge, and that's you. Take action today and share this podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I can't wait to see you next week. Man.